Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on the right side with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 28th of the 10th. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. How have you? I am, as always, exceptional. Or at least one of us should be happy. You said you're exceptional. You didn't say you were happy. Well, exceptionally happy. Right. You sound doubting. If you're... Well, I, I don't want to go too deep into your, your private affairs, Gary, but... How at this particular juncture in the year, this particular juncture, how the second lockdown, anybody, and with a 10-county rainfall warning issued by Met Aaron as well, for anybody who's interested in that kind of thing, how anybody could be exceptionally happy. You'd have some kind of psychopathy going on. Or else, of course, you are a Bodhavista. You are an avatar of the Buddha and have reached enlightenment. Well, actually, Michael, that's it. I mean, your problem is desire and expectation. You expect things to go a certain way, and then when they don't, you get terribly upset. Whereas I have no expectation of competency or grace, and so I am constantly pretty happy. Yeah, you see, you see that's where you're wrong. I expect things to go to shit. They always go to shit. And I am, and I am confirmed in my beliefs. No, no, I don't expect things to go poorly. I just don't expect them to go at all. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a few cars like that. So, Michael, we must. We started the last show with some congratulations for the government, and we've got to offer congratulations to them again. No, no, it's that kind of thing. If you make a habit of it, they'll get big-headed. They'll go around the gaff, and there'll be large. There won't be enough large bottles of cider at the doll bar. I know you'll walk out of your apartment in the morning, and there'll be a variety of them in the alley waiting for. Sorry, no, that's cats I'm thinking of. Yeah, if you feed them, they keep coming back. Politici- politicians are much the same. Well, they, they all work on the same basic principle. You give them tins of tuna and they like you. There were... So we have our whole level five pandemic thing. Uh, the COVID numbers continue to go down. We don't know if that's a, a trend or if that's just a blip and they'll start to come up quickly again. But they're going down at such a rate that the level five has had absolutely no impact. And if they continue to fall, well, level five may have been absolutely pointless from a disease prevention perspective. But what the government needs to be congratulated on is this. Some people, doomsayers, Michael, people who just look on the negative side of things, such as politicians, were saying that the level five lockdown could lead to an additional 150,000 job losses pretty much immediately. Okay. Now, Michael, we have the first week's figures so far. And only an additional 50-something thousand people are now on the pandemic unemployment payment. So, you know, a third of what we could have seen. Yeah, is that... So in a way, Michael, the government saved the jobs of 100,000 people. Is that what they did? It's what they'll say they did. I feel like I'm watching Darren Brown here do one of his close-up magic tricks. That doesn't seem quite... No, I, you, you, you had the card in your shoe all the time. First of all, can we be sure that the 100,000 are still employed or just haven't bothered to apply for the COVID payment or don't qualify for the COVID payment or haven't been processed for the COVID payment? No, but Michael, things like that are like the sodium level in hot sauce. If you don't look at it, it doesn't matter. Okay. Is there a lot of sodium in hot sauce? I thought it was mostly... Not, but, Chili, isn't that the point of hot sauce? There's, there's tons of sodium 
in hot sauce, an unhealthy amount, but it's very low calories, so very popular with people trying to lose weight. Don't want to look at how much sodium is in it. And similarly, 50-something thousand people lost their jobs, not 150 upwards. And as long as we don't look to see what those people are doing, or how the job market is functioning at all, or how close any of the businesses are to total collapse, they're fine. As long as you don't investigate too much. It's, it's a bit like, so you're saying it's essentially like uh, the bag of sugar which has the label 100% fat free. No, I think we're in sort of the Schrodinger's cat of economic devastation. Or like the roadrunner where he runs off a cliff and he knows if he doesn't look down he won't fall. It's only when he looks down. It's not the roadrunner so much as Wile E. Coyote. Just for... For textual accuracy. And as long as the country continues to somehow operate on the logic of a children's cartoon, this will remain a great success for the government. Well, there is some good news out there, Gary, because I don't know you had heard that a number of shops had their uh, clothing sections closed off. And uh, I was talking to a, a lady in Tesco's and she told me they had originally closed off all of the clothing section. But... Uh, yesterday, they were now able to sell socks and pants. So, you know, that's good news. You can't buy a shirt, but you can buy socks and pants. And I think, oh, and woolly big, woolly socks as well, and as well as those little socks you wear with runners, you know, you can't see the tops of. Um, and I think bras possibly were included in that as well. But I wasn't paying that much attention to the bra section. No, you haven't got to that level of boredom yet. Uh, it's not that I don't need support, it's just I don't want to be that guy. That's fair. So the the PUP is now costing us uh, about 85 million a month, oh, sorry, a month, a week. Right. <laughs> that, would, that would be cheap. No, about a week. So, um, yeah, our national debt figures are also, just, let's just not look at those for a while. Let's look at no economic data for a while, that might be for the best. A... Politically active person I met in the town recently said, you know what, I think the time has come for the World Bank just to make an agreement with everybody and just reset the whole debt thing. Just clear it all. Why don't they just clear it? I thought, that's great. It's nice to know that someone like you could be in the doll in the next five or six years because you've got that solid grasp of the economics of the world that you know, World Bank He's in a position, indeed, to go in and go and say to people, "Okay, let's just let's clear clear the old debt doc, debt doc, debt clock back." How much debt do the Chinese hold? Would you say of Americans, American debt at the moment, a trillion? Oh, I don't know, but uh, a lot. Put it this way: I I can't imagine them sort of waking up one morning and saying, "Do you know what? Ah, forget about it." No, no, seriously. You're never going to pay it back. What's the point? As long as we can keep doing business, we can be all happy. What What is interesting is Ireland holds about 300 billion in US debt. I wonder how much debt, Irish debt the Americans hold. We, you know, sorry, it was a couple of, this may be slightly out of date, but for a period there, we were the third largest creditor of the US government. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of embarrassing for the US, isn't it? Yeah, I think it went Ireland, United Kingdom, China. Really? Yeah. Now, some people, Michael, have said that that 
may not accurately reflect what is happening and that somehow those figures were influenced by, shall we say, uh, multinational corporations that are meant to be headquartered in the US holding vast sums of money. That they don't repatriate or something or they hold here, not there. A complicated accounting procedure, we had somehow ended up owning $300 billion of US government debt. It's a bit like the time our GDP went up by 23% in one year. Yes, and everyone in Irish politics simply agreed that we were going to ignore that. We weren't going to discuss it. We weren't (laughs) going to say it was ridiculous. We were simply going to ignore that it had happened. Move along. Come on. Nothing to see here. Maybe, maybe after a few drinks, complain that it brought up the cost of our contribution to the EU. But nothing else plaintively point out to the EU that really the GDP figures are not the best way of looking at uh, that whole contribution issue. Maybe we should look at maybe GNP figures uh, or even Gini. But uh, I'd say just this has nothing to do with anything in particular, but there was a really interesting uh, conference on Brexit, which was organised by an American uh, financial think tank. And they were going through the economic fallout for the UK and they're talking about he's saying you know the positives people are talking about you know the, the ability to start looking at different markets and he said that in in economic terms they talk about gravity in trade and gravity tends to mean that you you would you, you do more trade with countries that are closer to you than those that are farther away and they looked at some figures that have been thrown around about you know Britain as this wonderful international trading nation and there's a group called BRIC, which is this new burgeoning force in the world economy, which is BRIC, which is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. These four very large developing, developed economies. And uh, he pointed out, and I thought this was quite interesting, Brazil, India, Russia, and China, right? Big lumps of economies there. The UK does more trade with Ireland than it does with all the BRIC countries put together. I thought that was remarkable. Even after all the disentanglements of the last number of 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, as we've grown apart, farther apart, we are still very important to them. And they to us, which is why we love them dearly, even though we have, obviously, the kind of occasional spats and disagreements that you will have with your close neighbours and indeed your cousins. So what's happening in the world, Gary? So very quickly, just to continue our theme of uh, heartfelt and honest congratulations Amy Coney Barrett, U.S. Supreme Court. I thought it was rather sweet that uh, the choice was made that she was sworn in by Judge Clarence Thomas. Yes, who um, under underwent what was it a, a high tech lynching during his own confirmation period. It, here's a trivia question for you, Michael. When Clarence Thomas underwent that high tech lynching during his own uh, during his own passage to the Supreme Court. Do you know who chaired the committee that did that to him? Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden was chair, yes. It now means that we have... 6-3. We, we, yeah, 6-3 on the, the conservative-liberal uh, uh, axis, as it were. It's also, we mentioned this before, but it's bizarre. I mean, the, the, the demographics of, 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 of the court are really odd. You now have two Jewish members of the court... Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. 
there were three. It would the but it was with the the passing of uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, am I right? Ginsburg. Just thinking of Alan Ginsburg for a second there. Is that great? Anyway, yeah, there were so down to two, and are the other seven, six are definitely Catholic, and then Neil Gorsuch was raised a Catholic, but he's possibly an Episcopalian, but nobody's quite sure. Yeah, yeah. There are actually a surprising amount of Catholics at the top of the Republican Party and in right-wing politics in uh, America in general. Went through a phase in the last 20 years where the number of these prominent types that you'd, you'd read about their story and then you discover they'd converted the most uh, most unpredictable types, like um, oh god, what was the, um, he was the big he was the leader of the house, the Republican leader of the house in the nineties, and uh, he was all over the gaff. He was this uh, he was very abrasive and became Newt Gingrich, I, for example. I think Newt Gingrich converted, but there were loads of them. Every it seemed to be every second Republican was going, was was converting all over. Uh, but considering that for so many years. The uh, it was just basically a Protestant court. Uh, I'm looking. At the, I think the figures are the, there. Have a, there have been a 114 justices in all, and 91 of them have been Protestant. And now today we possibly have one Protestant on the court. It's just very odd. And again, if you look at the like the demographics of the United States, it certainly doesn't mirror the United States. Uh, the the makeup of which. But anyway, Amy Coney Barrett, who is very definitely a Catholic. Yes, we can. We can. We can work with that. And, uh, I mean, that brings the number of... Now there's multiple conservative judges. Yep. And you look at Clarence Thomas, who is the oldest of the conservative judges, is... How old is Clarence Thomas? He's not that old. I mean, he's 72, apparently fit as a fiddle. I mean, on the basis of recent years, he's certainly in a position... If he, if he wanted to, obviously barring accidents and hopefully the man stays well, we wish all of them well, as we, we wish anybody. He can hang on for another administration or two administrations to wait until the, uh, there is a Republican in the, in the White House again. If we're assuming, I'm, I'm assuming, that after November we will have a Democrat in the White House, that is not yet certain, it's not written, but it looks pretty likely, shall we say. I mean... The uh, Nate Silver on the has, I think, has Donald down to a 5% chance of winning, actually like 1 in 20, which is a lot less than he they gave him the last time. Yes, yeah, I, I did see Nate Silver saying that the only, one of the only reasonable ways Trump could win is if there was uh, electoral fraud, which strikes me as something you shouldn't say. Yeah, not, it's not when you're Nate Silver, not when you are no, the sort it's, of it's, great guru. It's like, have you seen Elizabeth Warren? wandering around saying that the election of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court is illegitimate. And you're sort of going, well, illegitimate would indicate that it's a breach of the Constitution and you are a senator, so that's quite a serious allegation. And if that's not the case, and we know it's not the case, uh, maybe you shouldn't go around telling people it's the case. I I don't know. what. Uh, maybe, maybe there will be consequences for that sort of thing. Yeah, I think there probably will be consequences. The problem is it's very hard to know what these consequences are. They don't know what the consequences are. We don't. But what, what do they mean? I mean, what, what processes that they followed were legal? They are the same processes that have been followed 
for all of these other people that this, the Senate is elected by the people. The Senate gets to make the decision. The Senate made a decision. There's nothing illegitimate about it. They mightn't like it. They mightn't like uh, Justice Barrett. I'm sure they don't like her. But that doesn't make it illegitimate. It's a very, very... It's in, but th this language, and I'm not saying it's only on the left, because it's not, but we're talking about the, in the United States, and it, but it is very definitely part of the tone of the left, that if, it, if, they, if, they, lose, if they lose a battle, it's, since they can't be wrong, there must be something fundamentally flawed or corrupt about the process that allowed them to lose. Now, I have often felt, again, maybe this are my ideological blinkers, that there is an element in the left which does tend to say that we need to bet when they lose the elections or, or votes, then what the best answer is to get better voters. Not that they need to change, but the voters need to change. And whether it happens on the left or the right, I think is one of the worst things you can say is when the politicians decide to, to blame the to blame the voters for the results of elections, rather than just say, well, maybe we just didn't convince them that we were right. Possibly we weren't right. Possibly we were wrong. So in uh, news that is that is wrong, Michael, just bad yes. news. Something that does not does not get to be congratulated. There is a new ban on nuclear weapons coming. I've got uh, to tell you, Michael, no. I'm strongly opposed. You mean like a limited ban, presumably? And we would presumably be allowed to use our nuclear weapons for our own uh, in certain limited pri private circumstances. You know, in a limited way. I mean, not going to be a blanket ban on them, is there? Well, I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, this the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICAN which was disgracefully given the new Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Disgracefully, right. Uh, basically, the, uh, the UN has voted um, to bring into force a ban on nuclear weapons. You know what, Gary? When this happens, is that your first reaction to think, well, why didn't they think of doing that before? Why didn't somebody do that in 1948, we'll say, and just stop all this nuclear weapons nonsense then? So Honduras was the 50th member state to ratify it. And so the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons will come into force on the 22nd of January. So is Honduras giving up all its nuclear weapons? I, I can only imagine so. And its dreams of uh, having nuclear weapons in the future. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that we were all very happy here in, in the county when Wexford Town many years ago declared it in itself a nuclear free zone we were much we were much relieved first of all because we had been worried for a while that Wexford town might be developing nuclear weapons and you know you, you feel a bit uncomfortable with the largest town in the country that you know that they they might get drunk during the opera festival and something you know nasty could happen the other thing is of course that means since it's a nuclear free zone no nuclear weapons will attack will attack Wexford town so if it was a big target for say the americans or the russians or the french or the chinese it won't be anymore because being a nuclear free zone you won't be allowed to t you won't be allowed to bomb it yeah so now that 50 countries have agreed to ratify it it's uh, the un has said it's going to go ahead that was the the threshold and um it took them about three years um so and the treaty aims to destroy nuclear weapons and stop research into them and prohibit their use it's not binding on the countries that refuse to sign it oh all right i see so uh, for example russia has russia signed this do you think no 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 okay the united states 
Uh, no. No. I'm beginning to see a flaw here, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, none of the nuclear states have signed it, including Israel, which is kind of a nuclear state. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you think the Israelis might have signed it in a way of saying, look, we look, no weapons here. We definitely don't have nuclear weapons. Any of those scientists who defected and said we absolutely have nuclear weapons? Lunatics. Yeah. Actually, I think it was only one scientist, to be honest. Have we signed it? Uh, probably. Simon Coveney made some vacuous comment about it. Seems unlikely. I mean, even if Israel does have nuclear weapons, it's estimated to have no more than, at most, 400 of them. 400, for God's sake, sure. What could you do with 400? I mean, I don't even know if they have a full nuclear triad, Michael. A triad? I'm sorry. To me, that's either three people in a sexual relationship or a Chinese mafia. Well, okay, the nuclear triad is slightly different than a sexual relationship. Um, And what it is, is it's... So if you have nuclear weapons, you want a system where you can always ensure you can attack with them. Okay. So what you have is you want to have... It's mostly a protection against first strike attacks, which is where an opponent would attack you trying to disable your nuclear capabilities. Mm -hmm. Because mad mutually assured destruction requires you to be able to respond and mad is the primary reason why nuclear weapons stop war because if you attack they'll attack and you all get destroyed and that would be mad yeah a sufficiently powerful first strike attack if it could neutralize your nuclear armaments would negate mad and therefore mean that nuclear powers would freely feel free to attack each other as long as they could devastate badly enough so nuclear triad is basically a way to ensure you always have what's called a second strike capability. And so what it is, is it's a three-pronged approach. So you have land-based nuclear missiles, strategic aircraft with nuclear missiles, mm-hmm. usually constantly in the air, at least a number of them. And then you have... Submarines. And uh, yeah, that is that is the nuclear triad. If you have all three, you have a nuclear triad. And the likelihood of someone attacking you is dramatically lessened because... It's very hard to get rid of all of that at once. And if you don't get rid of all of that at once, they're going to nuke you. Mm. So Israel is a suspected uh, is suspected to have a nuclear uh, triad. Technically, if you have a... The, the terminology is if you have a, a nuclear triad, you're considered a... Not just a nuclear power, but a triad power. So, like, there, there are classes of nuclear power, right? Yes, yes. So... Like, if you just have a nuclear power, you're like a small child in, you know, a playground. Whereas nuclear triad, you're, like, decked out in all sorts of armour and such. It's not a great metaphor, but you get the idea. Yeah, you get to go to the VIP area in the in the nuclear weapons nightclubs. You really get to do what you want, because what are they going to do? Nuke you? I think the other element, in fairness, Gary, is that if you're going to launch a nuclear strike of such devastating size as to utterly destroy the capacity of the other country to respond, say if you're Russia attacking the United States, I think you're going to deal with some kind of environmental issues afterwards, which are going to be problematic for you as well as the United as well as the country you just blew up. Well, it depends which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, I think the wind will eventually blow the other way. Eventually, but you don't need it to last forever, just enough to carry the fallout to your other opponents. I've loved watching this because it's... You know when you see children building, like, a sandcastle, Michael? Yes. And it gets very ornate and many children join. And everyone is so happy. But they're young and they don't realise that the tide is pretty inevitable. 
Mm-hmm. And so you've had three years, basically, of UN diplomats being so, so on the side of good. And so, you know, we're going to make the world a better place. And this is a different era, I believe, was the phrasing of one of the diplomats who held it. A uh, uh, Costa Rican diplomat, I believe, which, again, is not known for its nuclear triad. Costa Rica doesn't have an army. Well, Costa Rica abolished its army. Well, maybe then we shouldn't take advice from them on nuclear policy. I don't know. I think they could sometimes for, you know, realistically speaking, a lot of countries around the world spend, relatively speaking, large amounts of money on an army that, if it ever came to, wouldn't be able to do anything effectively anyway. But, uh, you know, this, this, we're in this wonderful new world. This is no longer, we're, we're out of the shadow of the atomic bomb. And the entire time it's happening, every nuclear power in the world is just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah the, the, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate or fortunate or whatever, but I go back to my earlier point. This effectively shows up the fact that the United Nations is as functionally useful as Wexford County Council, Wexford Town Council, in fact, Wexford Corporation, in the level of uh, of real-world effect that this will have will be precisely the same as the consequences of Wexford Corporation's decision to go nuclear free. And that's not, I don't think, a very good look for the United Nations. However, for people like me who have been saying for some years that the United Nations is basically a trabant of international relations, it's whatever use it used to have for people to get around the gaff has long since expired in time. I think we you could probably build something far more useful or put apartments into it in New York where there is a constant shortage of part of you know decent parking at apartments and it would be much more useful and we should stop sending our troops abroad into dangerous situations operating under United Nations rules of engagement which only put their lives at risk and make it impossible for them to defend themselves properly and uh, we should whatever few quid it is that we have to spend every year to be members we could spend that on something else, like large bottles of Bulmers in the doll bar. So we've had we've had a lot of organisations coming out and saying, well, this will lead to a new international norm against nuclear weapons, or no, this makes nuclear won't. weapons illegal under international law. No, it and doesn't. It's, it's one of those wonderful reminders that international law, the problem with law is that you need an entity capable of administering it that is capable of forcing compliance. And are, are a unanimous agreement amongst all of the people that are governed by the law to respect the law. Yes, if you can get that, then you don't need force. But if you can't get that, well, then you do need force. And the problem that international law runs into is that states are very powerful, and it's often not really clear if they don't consent to the law exactly what can be done to actually make the law binding and to make it, in a sense, law, as opposed to a figment of your fucking imagination. Well, there is one thing, which is, the answer to that question is, what can be done? Uh, nothing, effectively, is the, is the correct answer. If you, if you, if you, if everybody signs up to things and we're all going to do this, you go, okay, fine, good luck to you, enjoy yourselves, have a great time. Which is why utopians and global progressivists hate the national the idea of national sovereignty because national sovereignty is one of those small-minded petty things that gets in the way of everybody living at global peace i want to give you a, a quote michael and this is from uh, 
Beatrice Fine, who is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. So mm-hmm. she was talking to the New York Times. And she said, well, the Trump administration has been trying to get countries not to ratify this. That's because they're nervous about the impact of the treaty. No, they're not. And <laughs> you like this quote, Michael. And she says, they know that even if it doesn't bind them legally, it has an impact. Nobody's immune to peer pressure from other governments. <laughs> God! Oh. I just, I love the idea of, of someone looking at a nuclear power and just being like, and don't you feel like we've all said we won't have nuclear weapons? Don't you want to destroy yours? And let's say France just being like, no, actually, no, we're, we're very happy with ours, frankly. Describe to me the world in which Vladimir Putin is concerned about peer pressure and the, and the good opinion of Costa Rica. Not even, like, trade sanctions. Peer pressure. It's not even that Belgium has announced that from now on, unless Russia stops with the nuclear weapons, we're not going to send them any more chocolate. You know? No, we're going to stand around and we won't let them play in the badminton tour- tournaments when we have the international conferences. And the great thing is, is this person, they, they talk about other treaties that have worked, like bans on landmines and cluster bombs. Oh, yeah, because they've worked. They, they, well, large countries tended to stop using them, publicly at least, and if they did use them, tended to remove the evidence. But the problem with nuclear weapons is that nuclear weapons are a core part of the current geopolitical order. And where you to get a situation where every country got rid of all of its nuclear weapons and everyone agreed that they would never make another one, that would last until pretty much exactly when one of them realised that nuclear weapons are really useful. How, how's, how, how are we going to get North Korea in on this? Violence? You know, how are we going to work with the country that happens to be ruled by a total fucking madman? I, lo- I love the idea of abolishing nuclear weapons because you, you can't do it. The technology is there. You can't, you can't put it back in the box. Do you remember President Ahmed Oh my God, the last president of Iran. I used to, honest to God, I used to be able to say his name. He, there is, as you know, Gary, in many religions, particularly Abrahamic religions, there is a an apocalyptic tradition or a, a, a tradition of what's called the eschaton, the last days, where there, where somebody will come back. In Judaism, it's the, the, the coming of the Messiah. In Christianity, is the second coming of Christ. In Islam, you also have this tradition. Uh, in fact, in, in Islam, in the end of the world will will involve the, the, the return of uh, of Jesus. He was a member of, uh, what's it called, I think the Twelver sect of Shia Islam, which has... It believes in the thing called the 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 occluded or the occult imam, and anyway, the world has to uh, that's be a big battle, and the world has to sort of kind of come to a, a pretty sort of damaging end before the uh, the Messiah can return and world peace and wonderfulness can ensue. Now, I remember when Iran was engaged in this whole process of trying to build nuclear weapons and he was the president being rather as I say more than a little bit concerned when I discovered that he was a 
very profoundly devout believer in this and was part of a tradition within his tradition which uh, believed that it was the it was the duty of those pe of people to try to precipitate the coming of the messiah by organizing the end of the world you know it's a bit of a worry when you have people running countries who actually think you know what the end of the world not a bad thing everyone needs a hobby so I think that you know, if it comes to that, having a couple of nuclear weapons hanging around just in case one of these guys is just about to get to that point when you, you know, when, you, when you're going to drop a bomb and you know the job has to be done right, sometimes there's only a certain kind of bomb will do. Yeah, I mean, America has made great advances in building things like the, the Moab, uh, which is a fascinating thermobaric weapon but it's not quite a nuclear weapon very impressive though uh, it was the highlight the early highlight of trump's presidency for me the usage of one in afghanistan oh um yeah nuclear weapons are, are never going away the, until we find other weapons that can replace them then they may go away highly likely the things we replace them with will be worse um, I think we can be fairly confident that man has a, I wouldn't say limitless, but a fairly significant capacity to design really, really horrible ways of killing other men and women and children. I just, I, you know, I kind of do, I really do love the optimism of the treaty, though. I mean, it, it's like a, a level of childlike naivety I've just never had, even when I was a child. So I take a certain amount of joy in seeing other people with it. Adults, it's somehow. not. It's not naivety. It's just bullshittery. These are people with well-paid jobs who desperately don't want to have to go back and work at some middle-ranking level in their own civil service, where they're not going to get a tenth of the pay they're getting when they're working for some gas, some UN quango job. So they have. I mean, it's like poverty campaigners. Nobody's ever going to declare poverty over as long as there's work in it. These people have to, in some way, justify their existence. And if they were to say, oh, by the way, what we are doing is just a completely useless, ineffectual waste of your time and mine. But, you know, it's okay, we have to do something. I think people might find that a Problem. So they don't say that. They say, oh, we have achieved something wonderful. We have changed the fundamental moral climate of the world, and this is going to lead to the denuclearization of the world. No, it's not. But you're going to be drawing $120,000 a year with a car and never paying a parking ticket in New York, and you're going to be living in New York, not in Costa Rica or Burkina Faso. Although I'm sure, actually, Costa Rica is probably quite a nice place to live. But not Burkina Faso. I don't think Burkina Faso is a pleasant place. I don't think they have alcohol in Burkina Faso. Also, I mean, they, they're very big into this, you know, we need to end, the phrase they use is, we need to end nuclear weapons before they end us. A limited nuclear exchange will not end us. Okay, I'm not unsympathetic to the idea of waking up tomorrow to discover that there are no nuclear weapons in the world. I am. It'd be fucking chaos. I don't think there would be. Really? You don't, you don't think that totally removing that off the table? 
may lead some people to be like, hmm. No, no, not if you could, as, not if the same morning that you would also wake up, that everybody would forgotten how to make them. And all of the textbooks and all of the, the, uh, the information on how to make them had also similarly disappeared. And a guarantee that nobody would ever think of, I wonder how you go about making that. Now, the tricky thing, Gary, would be, you'd have to do that and still at the same time, leave us with the technology to generate power in nuclear power stations. Here's, here's one of the big problems. Right? Let's take North Korea. North Korea wants nuclear weapons because it wants uh, mutually assured destruction as a safety uh, feature. So Do you think? You don't think there's just that your man that's running North Korea just as a very small willy? Uh, no, no. I think that there's no point having nuclear weapons other than either suicide or safety. Well, never just gone suicide. Yeah, I don't live in South Korea, though, so I'll just count it fairly heavily. These types, at the end of the day, if they decide to go down, they can, you know, it can be kind of like, a, well, everybody else is going down with me. That makes sense for North Korea, because if you can build enough nuclear weapons, you can totally negate a lot of the advantages of other forces. Yes. just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many tanks you have, how many missiles you have, because it does not matter. Also, by the way, since we mentioned earlier, landmines, the number of landmines between the beginning of the landmines in South Korean DMZ and the end of the North and the North Korean bit is rather significant. All the stars in the sky. Something like that. But uh, the problem with getting millions of them nuclear weapons is that it would massively upset the balance of power globally. Because people count on those to give them certain protections. I also, I don't have a lot of truck with this nuclear weapons are the most inhumane and indiscriminate weapons ever created. Uh, I mean, there are other pretty nasty ones we, I mean, we discussed before. Uh, anthrax, widely spread around the place, would not be pleasant if you were to launch a number of anthrax bombs in New York. That would be pretty horrific. I mean, we've got some exceptionally unpleasant nerve gases. We've weaponized diseases for a lot of our history. It also really depends where in the nuclear blast you are. If, Michael, if you get nuked, try and be in the first kilometer. Well, yes. Because you'll just die. Whereas, I don't know if you've ever read any of the accounts of um, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki yes, of yes. the hospitals trying yes, to deal yes. with uh, radiation poisoning, which they didn't know was a... The US government didn't really know was going to happen. They, those people did not have a good death. No, they did not. And just not just the radiation poisoning, I mean, just obviously, yes, but also the people, the burns. Yes, the burns also died terribly. But then if you read accounts of like early 20th century warfare, the use of gases... Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And you're talking, you're talking burning. I mean, look at the, the accounts of what happens when you got those. Uh, what was the phrase they used when they when they it was used incendiary bombs like on Tokyo or Dresden? Firebombing. Created, yeah, firebombs. But there's a there's a phrase where it it, it creates a, a certain momentum within the city, you, and it, it, it where it sucks all the oxygen out and it, and um, just consumes everything around it, and where you have people, uh, literally their, their skin would melt off. Yes, sir, people would jump into the river trying to get away from the flame, but then the river would boil. 
Oh, God. Oh. That's how Bomber Harris got known inside the RAF as Butcher Harris. Yeah, yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Good times. Anyway, mankind will always find a new way to do things. It's nice to know that mankind has evolved morally. And we are now so much better than we used to be thousands of years ago. When we used to just hit each other with sticks. We are now so much morally... We have morally evolved so much. So moving on from the UN to a smaller political issue, Michael, than that of nuclear war and geopolitics and uh, mm-hmm. our inevitable fiery deaths. Verona Murphy has uh, voluntarily relinquished part of her salary. She's moving down to the 350 euro of the... A pandemic unemployment payment for the length of the lockdown, probably six weeks. Although she notes that can go on, uh, that could go on longer. Yeah, that's a bit of a political problem, isn't it? I'd say it's not making her enormously popular with the rest of. Uh, well, 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 shall we start off with the other TDs in Wexford? I can't imagine they're going to be thinking, "Oh well, whoop de do." Uh, that's great. Like if you're, uh, if you're say, Maiden, you're the Sinn Féin TD, and you don't have resources. I don't know Verona's personal situation. Um, I think she was a businesswoman. She was president of the World Hoyers Association. Uh, I don't know if uh, she has, shall we say, other family resources available to her. That would mean that uh, she is less how dependent on her uh, income. I think it's I don't. I, I. I. I don't like this thing. I. I don't. This has been a theme that's been going on over in Twitter for the last. I don't know why. Oh well, if these people, if if these people are going to be want to be taken serious, everybody on Nefit should be on three hundred and fifty a week or whatever the COVID payment happen would be, and anybody in the doll who's voting on these things who votes for lockdowns, they should be on three. Yeah. Because you're going to get you're going to get consultant immunologists and virologists and epidemiologists to work for three hundred fifty quid a week. That's going to happen. So that's the way to attract the best uh, possible expertise that you can get in in the country by offering them three hundred fifty quid to in order to have people throwing brick brats and insults at them. And I'm not. I'm God knows I'm not a massive fan of Nefit or. The, the way they've been doing their business for the last little while. But th- there's this thing that we have, and I, I don't think it's peculiar to Ireland, but it's a very strong thing in Ireland, where it seems like we resent the idea that we are paying politicians at all, almost. And should they do their thing with you know with the, well, the average industrial wage? And that may be true, or it may be slightly exaggerated. But uh, I don't... Uh, is this really going to make her a better advocate? Is it going to make her more insightful about the experience? I mean, well, I mean, it'll probably convince her that uh, it'd be a really great thing if the lockdown ends as soon as possible. Also, I mean, is she giving? I, I, I don't know. I'm just asking the question: Is the money that she's not taking is that being returned to the revenue to the state? Is or is it going to a charity? Or is it just going into her account until... I I believe she's written to the clerk of the doll to do it, so 
My understanding is that that's just not paid to her. That's just stays in the state coffers. I think the real question here, Michael, though, is uh, the question of expenses. Because if she was also giving up her expenses for the six weeks, that would be quite a large whack of money. Mm-hmm. But I haven't heard any mention of that. I think the problem with this is, on one hand, people will say, it's just a cheap stunt. And they're politicians. Cheap stunts are what fuels them and keeps them going. Although, considering its cost to her personally, probably a moderately expensive stunt, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not that cheap. I mean, TD's on, what, 90-odd grand a year? Yeah, so, personally, not so, that cheap. Yeah, it's like 1,600, 1,700 quid a week. I mean, frankly, uh, that by six, I would count that as money. I think the, the problem that Verona is going to cause more than have is that once one politician does this, then people start going like, well, why didn't you do it as well? Mm, yeah, yeah. And then before you know it, that's costing people money. That's costing people money. Real money. Whereas if we all just agreed not to do that, everyone would be better off financially. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she's not going to make any friends with this, but uh, then again, I mean, Fine Gael did kick her out and basically nationally say she was a racist. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that making friends is... Number one on Ferona's list of things to do in the doll right now, and certainly not make friends with Finnegale, at least not for the time being. It may come in the next general election or the one after that, that it would turn out that it would be the best thing for the people of Wexford and for the people of Ireland for them to actually to come to some kind of a an agreement. But that's that's for the future. I think there is a, an important point here. There are segments of the economy that are going to be devastated by lockdown. And there are segments of the economy that will not be impacted at all. I mean, you have the multinationals, you have the public service. Yes. You have various people who are in private sector, but just won't be impacted on it at all. But looking at the, at the public service, they have a massive influence on policy, but it's, it's not going to cost them anything. In fact, they got a wage increase this year mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So... I don't know, maybe there is an argument there that if those people actually had, if there was a risk of those people losing their jobs or getting a pay cut, maybe there would be slightly more attention paid to people going, this may destroy our economy. I, I, I take that point. I think it would be interesting if we had the polling, I mean, on this and had a look at it, dig, if we were able to dig down a bit into it. Like, we saw that... <laughs> I don't know if this is fair, but from some of the polling that I've, we've seen so far, I have the impression that there's around a third of the population that would say, whatever whatever lockdown we were in, we should have more of it. More, more, lock them up, seal them into their houses, shoot, you know, you, you catch 17 or 18 teenagers having a, having a party and knocking back some Bacardi breezers, well, then they should be taken out to the chorus whipped and shot. It's the only way that, they'll learn. It's the only way they'll learn. You, know, you have to do something. Otherwise, you know, they just ignore you. Now, I think there's a there's a round, we'll say a third of the population, maybe far less than that, but my sense, there's a lump of them anyway that whatever you do. It would be curious to see if there is a correlation in the support for lockdowns and for further restrictions, a car, if there's a correlation between people in the public sector and the private sector. 
because if we're, if politicians are looking for political cover on this and they're looking to the polls, maybe simply that the people that are looking and are reacting are doing so because they're either not working because they're retired or they're working either in the public sector or elements of the private sector which are unaffected by this. But say if you're working in the bar trade, restaurants, hotels, tourism, retail, then I would be curious to see what level of support there is in the many tens or hundreds of thousands of people working in those areas that have what kind what the sport is like. Uh, maybe there's no difference, but I, I would be surprised if there wasn't some slight difference. We know the pharmaceutical, for example, the pharmaceutical sector is doing very, very well indeed. And it's principally on the back of the success of the pharmaceutical and other multinationals that if you look at this, the stats, we are apparently out of the OECD figures doing relatively well as regards the devastation that it's in, inflicting on the economy that there are other countries and i think what there's what 33 countries in the OECD 35 something like that we we come number six anyway we are the sixth best off when it comes to the impact that lockdown is having on us and that's principally because of the success of mostly the pharmaceutical and the other elements the multinationals but the domestic economy is being bet up um i suppose this maybe will draw some attention to who it is in the country supports the present policies and if there is indeed if that support is 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 closely connected to a level of security that other people don't have well i think when you when you look at the people claiming the pup yeah. It is very much concentrated amongst those under about 35. Right. And then I'd say inside that concentration, you're looking at people in probably more hospitality, retail kind of sectors, mm-hmm. service sectors. So I would imagine that it would be split largely based on that, on how likely you are to lose your job. Also, I suppose it... it there's another element there that you've drawn attention to is that they're mostly or largely under 35. So not only are they losing their jobs, but they're also people who may feel that COVID isn't that much of a threat to them, that they could be allowed out into the world to do their job. Because actually, like what what's the figure? Something like if you look at the demographics of, say, 20-year-olds, who uh, catch COVID, uh, they are a thousand times less likely to die from COVID than somebody over the age of 75. So they may feel that this is an excessive response uh, from their perspective, which is uh, making them unemployed and potentially, of course, and it's that's really the thing, isn't it? Potentially, when this is over, they will not have a job to go back to because the the businesses that they work in may simply just not never never open again. As we we just we mentioned that I think in the last podcast, the last piece of is, advice that Isby was giving out was to say that people should look at their situation regarding going into liquidation and maybe they should go earlier rather than later. That's not a great message to hear. No, it's it's not great, but it may be necessary. But I think that's uh, that's all we have time for today. We will be back on Friday, where again, hopefully something will have burned down. Indeed, something will have happened.
Uh, but until then, we wish you a good week and stay well and stay safe. Bye-bye. All the best.